This is K-Pop Unmuted, a podcast dedicated to in-depth discussion of K-Pop. We're your hosts, Stephen Knight and Scott Interante. And on this episode, we're talking about CL's official U.S. debut with our guest, Patrick Saint-Michel. Patrick is a music writer based in Tokyo, Japan. Thank you for coming on to talk with us from all the way across the world. No worries. Thank you so much for having me on. Patrick, one reason we wanted you to be on this episode is because you wrote a, an article in 2012 for The Atlantic about attempts of K-pop artists to break in to the U.S. market. And at that time, it was focused on Wonder Girls, but talk some about the history. And of course, CL's official debut takes place in the context of those failed attempts to break into the market. Maybe we could start out talking about that a little bit. Yeah, I think the first attempts by Korean artists to really break into, in particular, the United States pop scene is probably BOA and also Rain to some degree back in the middle 2000s, though I think he kind of ended up just pursuing more of a movie career rather than anything music related. Plus yeah. Stephen Colbert cameos. <laughs> Rain. Rain. Bo was kind of the first, what we would call uh, the modern era K-pop artist to try. Uh, she made a single, Eat You Up, and a subsequent album that didn't really go anywhere. It didn't really gain a ton of momentum. I don't really remember anyone writing about it at the time. I think at the time she was trying to do that, K-pop wasn't quite as buzzed about as it would become in the 2010s. So she kind of had a bit of bad timing, I think. It seems to me that SM might have thought that they could just sort of follow the same template that they used in Japan and let her learn the language and release some music and, and she would just catch fire. Yeah, it does seem like that was their approach with it, but you have to do way more. And as uh, attempts in the past few years have shown, you have to put a lot more into it to try to connect with listeners in America. So after BOA, the first real, I would say, effort to break a group in the U.S. market was Wonder Girls. They were one of the first buzzed about during the time when Hallyu was becoming a term people knew. And they opened for the Jonas Brothers on, I want to say it was all of their North American tour at one point. One of their singles actually was the first Korean song to break into the Billboard charts. It was like 70-something, but still an important milestone. So they looked at that and said, let's try to take this further. Let's try to use this momentum we have and build something bigger. So they decided the best way to introduce themselves to Western listeners was to make a movie for Nickelodeon offshoot channel Teen Nick in the year 2012 called The Wonder Girls. In theory, I think it was kind of the right idea. And this is what I focused on in that article in The Atlantic from 2012. Whereas somebody like Boa just showed up and was like, oh, I learned the language. Here's my music. Please accept me. And that didn't really work out. And there's a very rich history of Japanese artists doing something similar to that. Most notably, Utada Hikaru in the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. And that not clicking at all either. I thought what Wonder Girls tried was a bit more clever because I thought if you're going to reach out to a specific audience, tweens watching Teen Nick is a pretty good demographic to try to tap into. 
Yeah, I think trying to niche down was a good idea instead of just aiming for the you know the top of the top forty right away. I'm not sure about the movie. I don't know where this idea comes from that a movie is a good idea for a band with with English is not one of their strong suits. I mean, yeah, that's definitely one of the stumbling blocks with that one. Though that doesn't stop the Wonder Girls. They do eventually release an all English single, Like Money with Akon, which uh, I thought was a good song, but it didn't really do anything. You know, it's interesting, Patrick, it reminds me a little bit of what's happened with CL in that with Wonder Girls, there kept being all these promises of this album coming, it's coming, and I guess in the Wonder Girls case, the English language album never really came, and CL, we finally did get an official Mm -hmm. release. Right, but that was after a lot of introductions to her. You know, I think a good segue into uh, CL and where she's at now is to actually quote the Wonder Girls movie, JYP. This is like the first line of the movie. While they're on a plane, he says, Look, girls, this is the start of our first American tour. We only get one shot to make a great first impression. This would have been good advice, I think, for CL, because I think (laughs) one of her biggest problems right now is Lifted is being introduced as, ah, her American debut. But she's been kind of hovering around this entering the market for two, two and a half years now. She's had a lot of first impressions that they keep trying to reboot it, so... But they're very careful at sort of keeping the expectations low. None of the other ones were official debuts, right? Yes, that is correct. I wonder if her approach is actually a better approach. Instead of trying to say, okay, I get one shot to have this huge single, and if it doesn't get to the top 40 of the charts, then this is a failure. Instead, building on her already pretty huge fan base in America, just sort of testing out the waters with some different sounds, with some different songs, without the expectation on each one to be the song, and sort of Mm. get a sense of the market and what American audiences might want from her. In the long run, we might see that that's the better approach, and it might work. That's definitely possible, and I think she still has time. I wonder how many pop music listeners in the U.S. really know of CL even now or know about her earlier buzz tracks and, and the things that she's released in the last couple of years. Right, that's a good point. I guess the first thing she tried to do was with Skrillex and G-Dragon, Dirty Vibe, right? CL. CL. You with the presence of a queen, turn up. There were also some tracks that she and I guess all of 21 did with Will I Am on his album. Well, I guess for a while there were rumors that Black Eyed Peas were going to do like a whole album with CL replacing Fergie, but that never materialized either. But. Right, and there's apparently a 21 English language album somewhere in like Will I Am's closet, <laughs> just buried under hat boxes. But <laughs> that one hasn't seen the light of day yet. Because yeah, apparently, I even I think just last week I read somebody say yeah, it maybe exists, but nobody knows what's up with that. So I guess before we get into 
specifically talking about lifted and what we think about it, I want to sort of change the angle of this question. Mm. What does it mean for an artist from South Korea or Japan or really any other country? What does it mean to be successful in the American market? Can we argue the point that a K-pop artist singing in Korean, marketed from their Korean agencies, who come over here and sell out huge arenas, who get millions of YouTube views, and who chart on our Billboard World Albums chart and the normal Billboard 200 chart. I mean, is that not successful? What's the sort of fascination with breaking into like the American mainstream? That's a really good point, because... You are totally correct. No shortage of Korean artists in the past few years have had massive success in America, whether it be filling up arenas either at KCON or on their own. And even Japanese artists recently have done pretty well. Right. I mean, this year, Baby Metal have really, I mean, no Japanese act has been as successful as them overseas in the past decade. I think the difference is... When we're talking about something like baby metal, or we're talking about the K-pop acts who can go to these venues and sell them out in America or Canada or England or wherever, they're still kind of existing in a niche, I would say. Right. A very large niche. And it's very impressive what K-pop has done. And that should not be discounted whatsoever. But... I think with artists like the Wonder Girls, Girls' Generation tried it a little bit to to some degree sigh, though I think it just resulted in an almond commercial at the Super Bowl. And now, especially with CL, they want to have an artist who is able to sort of enter top 40 radio or just top 40 music and sort of establish themselves as... I want to say more than K-pop that kind of has air quotes around it and be more like everybody wants to hear this. They want like a household name that goes beyond this sort of niche scene that attracts plenty of attention, but still is not as widely known as possible by sort of your uh, mainstream listener. I think that's kind of, the mark of success they're looking for. You know, the other side of your question, Scott, is what would it mean to K-pop for CL to be successful with the approach that she's taking? Because she's kind of presenting herself as an anti-K-pop idol. You know, I'm not like these other K-pop idols. I'm more like pop stars that you're used to. You know, CL does participate in writing the songs, and this was done with Teddy and so on, so there is a pretty close connection there with YG, and this isn't that far outside of the kind of music that YG usually makes, but when you have a Korean idol who comes over here and drops everything about it that makes us think of K-pop, if they're successful, of course that would be very important just from the point of view of having an Asian pop star But does that really mean anything for K-pop? Right, and I guess that was sort of the talking points surrounding Psy when he became so popular with Gangnam Style is that it was sort of like a fluke or even a a punchline. But, I mean, he did sort of hit all those expectations that, Patrick, you were talking about. Number two on the Billboard Hot 100, performed at Times Square New Year's Eve, the Super Bowl commercial you are talking about, like, name recognition, mainstream success in a way, but as sort of a punchline. And 
the K-pop industry sort of like disavowed him as saying, well, that's not really <laughs> what we're about or what we do. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you can't have it like both ways. If you're going to be, I guess, mainstream successful in America, where inherently musical taste is very different than in South Korea or other parts in the world, then what will become successful here is not going to sort of represent, scare quote, K-pop, even if it's a Korean artist who is very popular in South Korea, like CL. Mm. Well, my idea has always been that a K-pop group, they'd have to have good English skills, and 21 was a good candidate for that because of CL in particular. But I think that a K-pop group could come in as something very different and maybe odd and weird to most American listeners, but might be able to make a mark, you know, kind of in the same way that baby metal has made a mark. They're not like anything that anybody's used to, and they strike people as very odd. But that certainly helps them build a strong niche audience and might be able to help them build a bigger audience. That's, That's the route that I would love to see. It may not be possible, but I'd love to see somebody try that with a group that has a better chance of success than some of the other groups that have tried in the past. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's sort of, at least with J-pop especially, there's kind of this tension with groups like Baby Metal or even somebody like Kari Pamu Pamu from a couple years Mm ago, where they get a bit of attention, but you get the idea that it's framed as, oh, wacky Japan at it again. I snorted drugs and it's kawaii. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like a tricky thing because you don't want to be tagged as, oh, YouTube oddity. And I think that's where a lot of people with Psy, as massively successful as he was, he's still viewed it as, oh, it's the horse guy that my mom knows. With Lifted for me, I think part of it is they're trying to really move her away from being seen as a K-pop artist with that song. Right, right. Get off my cloud. You don't know me and you don't know my style. Getting lifted, never come down. Getting lifted, uh. Getting dumb on the drum, rum, pop a pom pom. Better run, but I come, what a bomb bomb. Sipping on cooking rum, getting so drunk. Everyone wonder run where she comes from. So, what do you guys think of the song, Lifted? I'm torn on it myself. I think it seems, I'm not a very good judge of this, but it seems radio friendly. It's got a catchy chorus. I was actually surprised today how I kept singing it to myself after listening to it a number of times. Overall, it's sort of an odd song. You know, it's somewhere between a tribute and a cover. Right. (laughs) And the subject matter, probably just because I live in the K-pop world and know CL as part of 21 and so on, the the theme of drinking and getting high seems odd <laughs> to me for CL, but uh, it's always a bit of an issue. CL's diction and dialect, especially in this song, she seems like she has a Jamaican accent for a little while. You know, it's hard to say what her natural English diction or, or dialect should be since she grew up in France and Japan and everywhere else, but it seems. You know, especially in rap and hip-hop where authenticity is more important than probably in pop music, it strikes me a little strange. Like you touched on, there's a lot of reference going on here. I'm sure a lot of people know, but if you don't, a lot of it is referencing a Wu-Tang Clan song from the early 90s called Method Man, who is a member of the group who appears in the video. And then... I don't know if you guys saw this, but the website Genius, mm-hmm. they made like a video and they wrote about it too, talking about how Lifted 
references this Wu-Tang Clan song and then how this Wu-Tang Clan song was referencing a Michael Jackson song, which in itself was a cover of a Beatles song. You get to this point where it's like, so what part of this is original? What about this is telling me, oh, this is CL. How are you presenting CL to me if I'm somebody who's not familiar with her? It's weird, because I think overall it's a good song, and I personally like it more than the past two not-debuts she's presented to English audiences, Dr. Pepper and Hello Bitches. But at the same time, it doesn't seem as immediate. Like, it's just more like, ah, this is is good. It's interesting. The story behind it is a little bit similar to what they said about how Dr. Pepper ended up being written. What I read was that it was recorded maybe two years ago Hmm. and that it was sort of a spontaneous session where CL and Teddy were listening to Wu-Tang Clan and she wrote some lyrics and they went and recorded it. And that seems like, you know, you would think that when you finally get to CL's official debut, this would all be thought through and focus grouped and they would have a bunch of material that they would go through to try to find the perfect song. And for this song to be sort of this off-the-cuff song that they recorded a couple of years ago, now maybe that's the image that they want because it's not the first time they've presented it with these English-language tracks, but that's a little surprising. Right. I mean, for them to decide that the one they want to sort of put all the weight behind, although, again, I kind of question how much weight they're actually pushing behind it and how much they're going to weigh to, like, oh, well, we're actually going to do a full album and that will have its own lead single next year or something. But for now, this is the one. And the choice for them to make the one, this interpolation of a Wu-Tang Clan song that, like you said, is based on a Michael Jackson cover of a Beatles song. It's kind of a weird choice. And also just to align her with this sort of 90s hip-hop tradition, not just with including Method Man in the video and using his hook for the chorus, but also just the visual aesthetic of the music video. It's an interesting choice. I don't know if that's the best path for her, but maybe it is. Maybe there is like cultural cachet that goes along with that. Although I don't know how to someone who doesn't know her or her music, if they see this video, I don't know how much they buy it. Mm. It's tough for me to judge, or I think maybe for all three of us who know her repertoire so well to see her in this and say like, does that come across as authentic for her? I mean, we know that it's not fully But to someone who doesn't know anything about her, does she pass? I guess that's what this is all about. I mean, we're not talking about it directly, but it is about like race and the role race plays in Western music and in hip hop and her sort of passing in that world. Mm -hmm. The online criticism that I've seen is along the lines of this is try hard. This is phony. She's trying to be something that she's not. I think a lot of that is unfair because I think this really is the kind of music that CL likes. She did participate in creating it. Her style of dress, her mannerisms, I think, are pretty 
natural for her. It is a little bit different for her, though, being Asian, because, you know, if you're an African-American rapper, you can imitate other people, and it doesn't strike anybody as odd. It, it is tougher for her to to come across as authentic doing hip-hop. Mm. I, I'm curious what you think about all of this, Patrick, because you're much more tapped into the sort of cultural perspectives of East Asia. I mean, I feel like South Korea and Japan have a much different relationship with the use and in the Western world, we would even say appropriation of different cultures. Mm. So I don't know if you have more insight of that perspective from that part of the world. Well, yeah, it's definitely, as you said, very different, especially I find in Korea, not as much in Japan, though it's kind of changing. I mean, American hip hop is extremely popular. It's been that way in Korea for decades now. And Korea has a very celebrated history now of making their own take on hip hop. And CL is just kind of the latest in that lineage. And there's plenty more playing around with that style. And the same in Japan. I think in general, artists don't think about the appropriation issue because it's kind of a style coming to them. Right. This might be more common in Japan, but artists tend to have to decide whether they want to treat it as sort of dress up. You see lots of indie hip hop shows here in Tokyo or in Osaka where it's basically these aspiring rappers having watched a future video and being like, oh, I get it, I can do this. And they just kind of replicate the way they dress and the same sort of flow and style as somebody from America who is aware of these discussions of appropriation. You see it and you're like, "Uh, I don't know about this. Though then all you have to do is usually listen to the music and you're like, oh, this is just a bad imitation. Right. Whereas a lot of other artists, and I think CL is a good example most of the time with this, they hear this and they're like, oh, I really enjoy hip hop. How do I put my spin on it? I'm obviously not American. I'm not coming from an African-American background. It's like, how do I use this style to be myself? And usually a lot of creative new perspectives come out of that. And I think with K-pop in particular, that's what they've done so well over the past five or six years. With CL right now, it's trying to find that balance between I can bring a new perspective to this because I come from a very different background, but also wanting to appear like you get it and you want to sort of just slide in and be like, oh, look, I'm authentically American hip hop. Yeah, I think that balance is a great word there, Patrick, because she's walking this tightrope between, like you said, not coming off as imitating or just being totally derivative, but at the same time, she wants to communicate, especially in this song, I think that she's familiar with the history, she knows the genre well, and also there's kind of an endorsement, pretty direct, that, you know, Method Man is in the video. Right. And this is okay with legitimate hip-hop artists, and she is familiar with it, so she is okay. She's got the stamp of approval. I actually, I was working, I had successfully pitched a profile of CL to an American music website. And for like six months, I was trying to set this up. I went to Korea. I met with YG representatives from the company to talk about this. And they were very interested in doing it because obviously it would help promote her. And I told them the angle of the story, which is there's a long history 
of Japanese, Korean pop artists trying to cross over, but it hasn't worked out yet. But CL is probably in the best position to do it. And this would be a profile of her explaining why, showing the history, etc., etc. What gave them pause, along with Scooter Braun's side, they were worried about connecting her too much to K-pop and sort of that history that came before, which that part I get. You don't want to be like, oh, look at all these people who have failed. Can you be the one who doesn't fail? Because then if you fail, it's like, oh, great. They were trying really hard to get her beyond just that label of K-pop. And I think a lot of those early collaborations, like with Skrillex, with Diplo, and OG Mako, and Riff Raff, and now with Lifted, you see it, I think it's their most clear attempt to try to move her away from being considered K-pop into something that can be more top 40, I think they've really struggled with that because the media around her has all been, she's the Korean artist that's going to make it. That was the title of The Fader did a profile of her. And like every article about her that has come out since, I guess, Dr. Pepper, that's been a central part of it. And I don't know how much they like that because it does kind of instantly caster in this certain light that it's really hard to kind of break out from. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if the better approach for her, I mean, Steven sort of mentioned it, but she's not just from South Korea. I mean, she has been raised in France and America and South Korea. I mean, she has this sort of like global cosmopolitan upbringing. She's able to sort of not fit in anywhere and maybe leaning into that would actually be the better route for her. Again, I don't know exactly how that would sound, what that would look like, but this attempt of really trying to pass as authentically American hip-hop with the co-assigned from Method Man, with the very 90s hip-hop aesthetic and the sort of reggae hip-hop beat, maybe it's just too one thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know what her background is i guess i'm coming back to this but she's not like fooling us <laughs> into thinking that she's like authentically hip-hop <laughs> right but i don't know that she needs to be well another thing about cl one of her strengths is she really is a great vocalist right in addition to being a, a very good rapper she can dance you know i don't think you got much of that in this release hello bitches had some great right. dancing in it mm. but she is a really good vocalist too and i think that could really be something special about her that's different from certainly a lot of hip-hop artists right and i think like what i sort of was talking about earlier of how are we defining this success there are so many ways to be very very successful musically in america in the western market that don't involve being on top 40 radio i mean there are so many people here that listen to and engage with music that it's outside of that narrow mainstream, I would still deem like a huge success for her. And this song, I think, sort of proves that that's what they're willing to do because this is not a song that sounds like it's going to hit number one on the hip-hop charts. You know, it's like, it's a hip-hop song, but it's also sort of more of a reggae song. It's, like you said, sort of a chill summer hangout on the porch song. It's not like a banger that's aiming for number one on any sort of chart. And I don't think that that's what their metric needs to be. Again, I don't know if it is. You 
certainly had more access to them, but it was a while ago, and maybe they've changed their mind even since then of what they're hoping to get from this. You know, with Scooter Braun on board as her sort of American manager or label head, however that deal has worked out, you would think that that would be the goal, but maybe it's not. I, I don't know exactly what they're trying to do. All right, so guys, do you think it'll be another 18 months before we get the next CL release? <laughs> she should make a like Wonder Girl style movie next. Try to like get back on that. We need more K-pop Nickelodeon movies, honestly. Yeah, true. That's what I learned this week. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's move on to our K-pop unmuted picks, where each of us picks a song that we've been thinking about or that we'd like to discuss. Patrick, have you chosen a song that you've been thinking about that's come out recently? Yes, I have. A K-pop song I've been listening to a lot over the past week is Puer Kim's Pearls. Puer Kim, she's not like a mainstream, super big name K-pop artist. She's a bit smaller, but she's gotten attention over the last few years. She seemed to get a lot of attention online from the sort of sites that I read. Yeah, a lot of sites really like her. She got a bit of extra attention with a song from a few years ago. Apologies if I mispronounce anything. I study Japanese. <laughs> she had a song called Manyomash that came with a video that was kind of a critique of the mainstream K-pop market. Most notably, there were crash test dummies with YG and SM written on them, <laughs> which is not subtle at all, but it was great. And it got a lot of people's attention. But this song, I have really been enjoying it. It's really sort of dazed, woozy electro pop number. She sings in English on it. And a few sites have said, oh, they don't like that. It sounds awkward. But I actually like the effect it has. It kind of blends in well with the music and makes for this really fever dream pop song. You know, it's interesting you describe it as dreamy and relaxed because that was the impression that I got the first few times I listened to it. And then I noticed that there are these stabbing sort of urgent EDM synths that jump in throughout the song that really don't fit with the rest of it. But it must have fit in pretty well because it didn't really strike me as unusual the first few times I, I listened to it. It's initially relaxed, but ultimately what really has stuck with me is it's really unnerving. And like you said, those little details, they feel very strange. They sound very unexpected, but it works so well. Well, my pick this episode is a lot more mainstream artist. It came out a little while ago, and I've been tempted by a lot of other really good songs. Seems like a lot of good music has come out recently, but I'm sticking with Hyanna's Morning Glory. It's a surprisingly not boring song. <laughs> it's a slow tempo song, and I don't know that it really even has a chorus or much of a hook. And the bridge in particular, I can't figure out why I like it so much. It seems like there's a lot going on, but it doesn't strike me as boring at all. <laughs> Now you can do it 
detail that I like about it that I talked with Scott about online is that it starts out and throughout has these drawn out notes that explode and disappear on the beat. And I think that really adds some drama and tension to the song, even though it is slow tempo. But I thought it was interesting, Scott, what you thought that sound actually was. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost positive that it's a reversed piano. So basically, they would record this piano chord and then flip that recording. So when you hit a piano, it's going to start with a strong attack where the note is, and then will gradually fade out. But if you flip that audio, it does the opposite. It starts quiet and swells into this strong attack at the end. So it's kind of a cool sound that you can put usually as like a transition, or in this case, it's sort of a hypnotic effect. One reason that I really wanted to talk about this song is I think it's a great example of why I think that Hyuna is a terrific vocalist. And I don't think that's mm. the common wisdom. <laughs> but I mean, even though she's not a power vocalist, she really puts a lot of personality into her singing and rapping. She's always interesting to listen to. You don't see her as a singer in the spotlight presenting this song. She really gets into character and comes across as communicating whatever it is that the narrator in the song, the character in the song, you know, in this case, at one level of the song, she's a flower talking to the sun or to other flowers. But she communicates that, you know, almost as an actress more than a singer. If you think about just the variety of ways that she sings and raps in this one song, she's very versatile. And I think she's just great to listen to. And, you know, I don't think you have to be a power vocalist or have an incredible range to be a really good vocalist. And I, I really like Kiana as a vocalist. What did you think of the uh, rap interlude? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I thought it fit in well with the song. I thought that the style was good. It's a, I'm not familiar with the rapper. His name is Isle mm. Kim. And even though I thought he did very well, I think if you compare it to Hiana's performance, he sounds like a rapper that is rapping he's got a good you know if i were the type to use the word flow i would say that he's got a good flow <laughs> it's very well done but he sounds like a rapper who's rapping his lines whereas yana puts a lot more personality and and character into it but what what did you think patrick you were not a fan of the uh the rap well no, it actually when we were talking about cl we touched on how sometimes in Asia there are rappers who are kind of just imitating styles and how a lot of times it's kind of forgettable. I should clarify that sometimes I really like when Korean rappers in particular, they kind of like seemingly imitate someone so much that it becomes charming. I don't know much about this artist, but he sounded like he was trying so hard to be Kendrick Lamar in his delivery. <laughs> and I found that really endearing. Like, he listened to Kendrick Lamar and was like, oh, it'd be so cool if I could just be like him. He just sounds so similar. And I actually liked that. <laughs> so it hit on one of my guilty pleasures in K-pop, which is imitation taken so far that it's actually kind of cool. 
All right, Scott, what song are you thinking about this episode? Uh, so, you know, on Pop Unmuted and on K-Pop Unmuted, we always encourage our guests and the hosts to pick either a song that they like or a song that they're just thinking about a lot. And it's almost always a song that we like. And there are a lot of songs from this month that I have liked, but more so... <laughs> There are these two songs that I can't stop thinking about that I really I really don't like. Um, and they are the two songs that sort of dual debut releases from YG's 21 replacement group, Blackpink. And there's no reason to, like, not call them that, right? That's exactly what they are. We have this new four-member girl group that is like for like a replacement for 21. But their two songs, Whistle and Boombaya, came out together. They both have music videos. They are both insanely popular already. Huge success in America, in South Korea, presumably everywhere. Huge YouTube numbers and like the 20 million views. I don't, I don't get it at all. <laughs> For the most part, I don't love the sort of YG hip-hop pop stuff, but I usually like it more than this. And Whistle I like a lot more, but both songs are sort of overstuffed, with too many ideas, with too much going on. I don't find any of the girls or their personalities like particularly jumping out to me like they seem to for other people. We were sort of talking about ideas of appropriation. Both of these songs have a lot of sort of stereotypically Indian music and visual aesthetics and dance moves. And so that's weird in itself. know if you guys can help me understand why people like this group so much it's, it's funny because i think it was around the time they announced their name yeah i was kind of poking around and there were so many twitter accounts that were just like fans of new yg girl group 10,000 followers i think people were kind of just hyping themselves up for whatever this was going to be right. i think that's part of it for sure yeah there's definitely two different issues which is the success based on whatever it is, the hyper anticipation or it being a YG group and then the quality of the songs. And But I think people really do like the songs. Now, if another group had done it, it wouldn't be this level of success, I'm sure. Do you think it's 21 withdrawal? Like people miss 21 so much that they're like, these songs that might very well be old 21 songs, like with Boombaya, it sounds like it came from that 2014 when Diplo and right. DJ Snake and like Dylan Francis were deep into like Indian sounds. It's funny because I think that K-pop fans are the types who hate the group that comes and tries to replace their favorite group. Like when Red Velvet came out and people thought they were trying to take over for FX, they got a lot of hate for that. And I... if. I would have expected Blackpink to get that if YG fans' perception was that they were replacing 21. But obviously I would have been wrong. 
It's funny because I think both songs have good ideas and like there are bits and pieces where I'm like, oh, you could definitely build a group that has good songs and a strong personality from this. But the way it all comes together, and I agree, I think Whistle is way, way, way better than the Boom by Ah. And I like songs that are kind of crazy and hodgepodge and like a bunch of yeah. stuff thrown together. I mean, like, I Got a Boy is still one of my favorite K-pop songs of all time. But there's something about this that none of the pieces by themselves excite me too much. And I don't think that they work together too well. And I guess part of me is responding more to the hype than to the music. But, you know, if this wasn't hyped up so much and there weren't so many people talking about how great it is... I would just say, oh, okay, yeah, that's not for me. But because so many people are saying this is for me, <laughs> and I don't feel it at all, I'm really kind of frustrated. I don't know. I mean, I I want to like them. Maybe future releases will win me over, but for right now, I don't get Blackpink. <laughs> Fingers crossed that they can uh, evolve from this. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah. Well, Patrick, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about CL's official debut in the U.S. and the other things that we talked about. Uh, where can people go to read some of your writing and connect with you online? Yeah. Uh, well, first off, thank you for having me. And you can find me. I'm on Twitter at MB Melodies. I mostly tweet about J-pop and Japanese music. You can also visit my blog, makebelievemelodies.com, if you are hankering for some Japanese indie music. I'm working on a story about Korean indie music at the moment, so keep an eye out for that. That might be up your alley. Thanks so much. Cool. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Interante. That's I-N-T-E-R-R-A-N-T-E. And Stephen? I'm on Twitter at Tennessee Appeal. And of course, you can follow the show at K-Pop Unmuted on Twitter or Facebook. You can check us out at kpopunmuted.com. And please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. Leave us a rating and review if you like the show. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.